Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. New regulations and draft guidances may be on hold at many federal agencies until the Trump administration can find its footing, but enforcement by FDA, FTC, and the USDA is not, and neither is litigation related to how food and beverages are made and marketed in the U.S. In fact, FDA is notably moving forward with enforcement of old and new elements of the Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA, which some in the industry speculated incorrectly at the start of the year might be moved to the back burner by the Trump administration. For example, just this week, the first major compliance date for importers covered by the Foreign Supplier Verification Programs under FSMA went into effect. And according to Claudia Lewis, who's a lawyer at the Washington, D.C.-based firm Venable, FDA inspectors are already zeroing in on these requirements. According to a recent constituent update issued by FDA, the Foreign Supplier Verification Program seeks to ensure that all food consumed in the U.S. meets the same preventive food safety standards regardless of where it was produced. And as of May 30th, all Foreign Supplier Verification Program importers whose foreign suppliers are not subject to the preventive controls or the produce safety rules must verify their foreign suppliers meet applicable FDA safety standards. And even though the deadlines for the other covered entities will roll out slowly over the next three years, Lewis said some FDA inspectors are already focusing on these requirements. Your foreign supplier verification program, which is under FSMA, is something that people are focusing on. When um, FDA is inspecting facilities, they are focusing on if you're getting ingredients abroad, what have you done to make sure that you're getting bona fide ingredients and that they're not contaminated and that they're the appropriate types of ingredients to be including in food in foodstuffs here in the United States. And that is a, a new a new focus for FDA. I had not seen them focusing focusing so quite discreetly on that. There's two issues to it, you know, sending someone over to make sure that you, you have a good partner abroad. Um, making sure you understand what their capabilities are in terms of providing you with records or you're being able to um, verify them, your ability to have sort of an interface so that you're not constantly, you know, going abroad to make sure that what you receive is what you think it is. So having a um, sort of a, a, talk, a system that talks to one another. Um, all of these issues are ones that we help counsel clients through, having very good agreements, having high-quality standards, having checks in place to make sure that the quality standards are being met so that you don't um, have these unintentional um, contaminations or, or missteps that would cause the FDA to either think that a recall is necessary or even you know, further take a seizure action. And so we really counsel about making sure that you have good um, agreements in place and that you have follow-through. And, of course, you know, with any partner, once you have a good track record and you feel like you understand them and there's a level of trust and a way of working with a a, a company, then you can do that deep dive and, and do all that extra work 
continuously with your new partners and things. So maybe it won't be every year that you do the audit. It might be every two years, or maybe you feel like you can do it even, um, you know, a paper audit as opposed to in-person audit. But these are all the things that we sort of counsel our clients to to make sure that, you know, what we're putting in our products is what we understand it to be and um, that we can safely release the, the, you know, the finished goods. This is far from the only compliance focal point for FDA. According to Lewis, who regularly reviews warning letters from the agency to industry players to identify areas of concern, also says that FDA is focused on nutrient content claims and the landmines that are the terms healthy and natural. The other thing that I'm seeing in the warning letters, too, is, of course, the claims that are ma- being made for um, the products. So if we look at um, the kind warning, warning letter that, you know, issued in March of 2015, we see the agency sort of looking at safety, but also what are you communicating to consumers? And so that the kind warning letter focused you know, on the use of the term healthy and, and the use of the term healthy in connection with, you know, whether the product was low in saturated fat or how many calories it had in it or whether the term healthy caused it to be a nutrient content claim. So this is still um, an area where the agency is quite active in terms of what types of claims are being made for your product and are they appropriate under FDA regulations. Even though the agency goes through great um, lengths to make sure that people understand these guidance documents are not binding on themselves nor on the, you know, recipients of the guidance, the plaintiff's bar doesn't feel that way. And so what you see is that, you know, products that might use the word healthy appropriately um, are um, receiving lawsuits because of their sodium content based on this guidance. According to Lewis, the kind warning letter also is illustrative of the type of back-and-forth industry has with FDA, but not with the plaintiff's bar. She explained that when Kind pushed back against the agency and petitioned it to update the conditions of use for the term, the agency agreed. But that didn't stop plaintiff's attorneys from moving against Kind and others who used the word healthy and accusing them of misleading consumers. So it's always a... um a delicate um, balance that you have to create. And often when we're counseling clients, I tell them that, you know, the FDA is probably not always the most um, worrisome party at the table is that plaintiff's bar, because at least with the agency, as we talked about earlier, it really does work for you to come into compliance. So even with the warning letter that KIND received, you know, who wants to receive a warning letter like that? No one. But at least the agency, you know, you could work back and forth, and the agency did make some concessions that, you know, as long as healthy wasn't connected to certain words, that there was some flexibility and latitude as to when you could use the term healthy and not be automatically transformed into a nutrient content claim. Um, but the plaintiff's bar doesn't see it that way. So I get demand letters from New York, from California, from Florida, um, certain of the states sometimes will send you inquiries about certain of the claims as a result of, you know, an under, you know, something that the agency has um, issued. So it's a very real concern that um, third-party litigation will ensue as a result. 
Another target for class action false claim suits are fanciful synonyms used to make ingredients sound more appealing or quote-unquote natural to consumers, such as the use of evaporated cane juice instead of sugar. The class action bar is taking the position that by saying evaporated cane juice as opposed to sugar created a false impression that the um, product contained less sugar than they actually contain. And we've seen this type of issue and other types of nomenclature used in connection with sugar. So this is not a new issue. I think that the um, Center for Science in the Public Interest really focused on um, corn syrup and versus sugar. And now we see, you know, people trying to use evaporated cane juice um, as a, a different word for sugar, and the FDA saying, no, we don't think that that's a common or usual name. And so one way to protect yourselves, obviously, is if you decide to, say, evaporated cane juice, you could always just put sugar parenthetically or to follow the FDA regulations as to how you um, define sugar. Or you could take a lesson from KIND, and we could ask the agency to um, expand you know, what are alternative, what, is, what would be considered an appropriate alternative language for sugar. And I think it's just a, um, you, know, you know, educating consumers that, you know, the common name for sugar could be any kind, any of these, you know, variations. According to Lewis, another emerging area of interest for plaintiff's attorneys and an area of concern for USDA and FTC is organic. Now, this one surprised me because organic has a clearly defined and enforced set of standards by USDA. But Lewis said it isn't the standards that are in question, but rather how consumers are interpreting the term organic. The FTC and USDA had a roundtable discussion last year in September to talk about organic claims and to discuss consumer perception in this area. And so, you know, does organic mean natural? Is it synonymous natural? You know, what do consumers think about this? And so I think that we should be prepared to see some discussion uh, in and around organic claims. And I don't know whether USDA is prepared to, you know, change the rules and regulations around it, but I just thought it was very interesting that they were talking about it. So if the consumers are perceiving organic to mean something that, it doesn't mean, does that need, mean it needs to be further qualified? Should we have additional rules and regulations around it? Um, you know, it's just, what do consumers think about organic claims? And I know that the plaintiff's bar has been conflating recently, you know, natural and organic claims. So if you use the word organic, they think that you've made this 100% natural claim. And that is not necessarily true, but that's the position they're taking, that consumers assume that organic means there's nothing man-made in the product. Beyond organic, Lewis says FTC is sticking with a trilogy of targets in the food and beverage space that it has long taken aim at, including claims related to weight loss, cognition, and immunity. I see the FTC, you know, moving in the, in the food space every now and again. And so, um, you know, but really it's when someone has made some sort of 
outrageous, not outrageous claims, but some very performance-based claims. But if I were to give you a general category of, of claims the agency seems to be very focused on, would be weight loss claims. I'm not really sure what happened at the FTC, but I think they kicked off Operation Waistline in like 1997 when I was a baby attorney. And they have been dogging the weight loss services and, and, and um, product space since. And then cognitive claims. I mean, you know, a lot of the American population is, you know, getting older and unfortunately suffering with dementia and Alzheimer's. And so you see a lot of cognitive function products out in the marketplace promising to restore memory or to take years off of memory loss and the like. And the FTC has been very um, specific about going after those types of claims. And the other area where you've seen is immunity claims, so promising that you're going to reduce the duration of a cold or promising that you're going to be prophylactic and preventing the cold, all of those types of claims um, the FGC um, was concerned about and continue to be pretty vigilant um, about. But that doesn't mean companies can never make these claims. Lewis explains what they need to consider if they want to make these claims. Substantiation is is key. In the cases that I've handled with weight loss claims or cognitive claims, and I'll put the immunity claims in a separate category for a moment, is that, you know, if you promise to lose weight while you sleep, then uh, there's probably not that much scientific evidence to support that type of claim. But if you talk about eating, um, you know, a moderate calorie intake, moderate exercise, um, you know, and healthy sleeping habits and things like that, I don't know that the FTC is going to be um, overly interested. I think that it's when you promise, like, fast or lose 100 pounds in so much time or you take these products and it's going to augment your ability to lose weight. That's when the agency is like, we want to see the science and we want to see that these particular products do facilitate additional weight loss aside from just simply a diet and exercise routine. Um, And so really in my mind, when I talk to clients about weight loss claims, it's just making sure that whatever science you have in support of them, and there's a variety of ingredients and the variety of of weight loss um, services that certainly help um, consumers lose weight, is making sure that your claims are tied to the science that you have. So you're not often what gets you in trouble with the FTC is that your claims are just so outpacing any science that they would be aware of. And the same with cognitive claims. Now, the immunity claims, I think that um, is a little bit of a debate, different debate because I know that FDA and FTC have gotten together on um, immunity claims. And the agency, so FDA was concerned that certain of the immune, immune claims cause a product to be drugged. So if you talked about a boost the immune system or regulate the immune system, the FDA was taking the position that it was a drug claim. And FTC was saying, you know, we if you make those specific types of claims, we want to see a direct correlation between your food stuff, your nutrient, or whatever you're offering for this immune um, action. They want it you know, A plus B or 1 plus 2, I mean, 1 plus 1 to equal 2, as opposed to sometimes there's like 
1 plus 3 equals A, and then because A is correlated with B, then we can get to this claim, and the FTC was like, no, there can't be such gaps in the logic of your science. And so the FTC was very clear about what type of science you need to have to support immune-boosting and immune-regulating type claims. Ultimately, when it comes to enforcement and trying to avoid running afoul of the laws, Lewis says FDA is not looking for perfection, but rather for companies to have a system of checks and balances, including good manufacturing practices, a food safety modernization plan, and consistency in applying the rules to maximize the spirit of those laws. With that, we've come to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. Hope you all enjoyed it and that you'll join us again in the future. Until then, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.